0: Hi YouTube! It's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be another unsolved true crime case for my Curious Case series. This video was voted for by you guys in the community poll that I posted last week whether you guys wanted a solved or unsolved video. So the winner was unsolved so that's what we're gonna be doing today. I will be posting more polls and things like that in the community tab so be sure to keep your eyes posted and turn on that bell icon so you can be notified when I post it in the community tab so you don't miss out on any votes for videos or anything like that. I'd just like to point out, this video has not been made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various public sources on the internet. So now with all that being said, Let's delve right into this video. Gary Matthias was born on the 15th of October in 1952 in Yuba City, California. Now, Gary had a fairly normal childhood and in his early adulthood, he enlisted in the army. However, it was while he was listed in the army when he was stationed in West Germany during the 1970s that Gary began to develop a major problem. And that problem was with drugs. Gary's drug problems began to spiral out of control and the drugs began to have an adverse effect on Gary's mental health. I'm unsure to what extent Gary's drug problems went to, but what we do know is that it was a result of these drug problems that Gary developed a mental disorder called schizophrenia. And due to this condition, Gary was psychiatrically discharged from the army. After being discharged, Gary returns to his family home in California to live with his parents, and he promptly began treatment for schizophrenia at a local mental hospital. Now this process, and this time in Gary's life was very, very hard for him, as you can imagine. He had been arrested twice for assault, but was not charged, and he had suffered from several psychotic episodes. And as a result of these episodes, Gary was admitted to a Veterans Administration Hospital. Now, a Veterans Administration Hospital provides near-comprehensive medical care for all eligible ex-military members, eligible veterans. And as the treatment for schizophrenia, as you can imagine, is by no means inexpensive this was a blessing in disguise for Gary and his family. Fortunately for Gary, by 1978, he was being treated on an outpatient basis. And this was through the use of stelazine and cogentin, which are pharmaceutical drugs. Now Gary, by this point, was considered by his physicians to have been one of their sterling success cases. Due to his disability, the schizophrenia, Gary was eligible to collect a disability pay packet from the army, and Gary did just that. Unfortunately, this disability pay packet was not enough money to keep Gary afloat. And that was even with the assistance of his parents, who he still lived with at this point. So Gary decided to start working for his stepfather's gardening business, where even with this disability that he had, he was able to get his life back on track and make a decent salary. Now Gary had even begun to make friends outside of his family. He'd become close friends with four other men, all of which suffered from either intellectual disabilities were considered to be slow learners. Now, three of these four men were slightly older than Gary, but that didn't hinder the close bonds that they all had with one another. The four men in this group were Bill Sterling, who was 29 years old and suffered from intellectual disabilities, Jack Hewitt, who was the youngest of the group at 24 years old and also suffered from intellectual disabilities, Ted Weha, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, who was 32 years old, the oldest in the group, and was considered to be a slow learner, and five finally, Jack Mandruga, who was 30 years old and also considered to be a slow learner. Gary himself was 25 years old. Like Gary, the four other men lived with their parents, and they either lived in Yuba City itself or the nearby town of Marysville. All of their parents referred to the five men collectively as the boys. Now, the boys' absolute favourite pastime activity was anything to do with sports, in particular, basketball. In fact, whenever the boys got together, it is said that they're getting together just to play sports or to watch a game. Now the boys themselves actually played basketball for a local team called the Gateway Gators. Their team was sponsored by a local program for the mentally handicapped. Now on February 25th, the Gateway Gators were set to play their first ever competitive game in a week-long tournament, and this tournament was sponsored by the Special Olympics. Now the winners (laughs) of this tournament would win a free all-expenses-paid trip it to Los Angeles for a week. The boys had prepared vigorously the night before on February 24th, with a few of the boys even laying out their uniform in preparation for the next day and telling their parents to make sure that they were awake in time to get ready and to go to the match. In the early evening of February 24th, the night before their first ever competitive match, the boys decided that they would drive to a basketball match to support the VC Davis basketball team in an away match against Chico State in the the town of Chico. Out of the five boys, only Jack Mandruga and Gary had their driver's license. So Jack Mandruga decided that he would drive the group 80 miles to Chico in his turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego. The boys dressed for the occasion, donning only light coats to keep them warm against the cool temperatures of the Upper Sacramento Valley during the February months. And on that night, the V.C. Davis basketball team actually won their game, and the boys (laughs) Yeah. were beyond ecstatic. After the match was over, the boys got back in to the Montego car and drove for a short distance to a local store called Beer's Market. And Beer's Market was in downtown Chico. It was at this store that the boys bought snacks, they bought sodas, and they bought cartons of milk. The boys went into the store just before 10 p.m., which is the time when the store closes. A clerk that worked at the store said that she remembered them because she resented such a large group of customers coming into the store that late in the night and delayed her from starting to close up the store. Then the boys got back into Jack's car and they drove off. They were never seen alive again. Their parents had stayed up to make sure that the boys returned home safely, and when they didn't return in the morning, their parents all called the police. Police in the counties of Boote, I think it's pronounced Anuba, began searching along the route that the boys took to Chico, believing that they would probably have returned the same way that they came. However, the police found no sign of them whatsoever. A few days after the boys went missing, a Plumas National Forest Park ranger told investigators that he had seen the exact same Montego car that had been described in the missing persons bulletin, and he had seen this car along the Oroville Quincy Road in the forest on February 25th. The ranger went on to say that he didn't see the car as anything significant at the time that he saw it because a lot of residents would drive up into the Sierra Nevada on winter holidays or winter weekends just to go skiing along the routes. It was only after the ranger saw the missing person's bulletin and reports that he recognized the vehicle and remembered the vehicle. The ranger then went on to lead the investigators to the location of the vehicle on February 28th, four days after the boys were last seen. Investigators immediately began searching the area to find any kind of evidence or anything that may lead them to the location of the boys. Inside the car, police found evidence that the boys had got back in the car between when they were last seen at the store and where the car had been found. Detectives also found programs for the basketball game that they went to inside the vehicle. They also found a neatly folded map of California in the car. The wrappers and empty cartons of milk and empty cans of soda were found in the car, which suggested to investigators that they definitely did go back into the car after they went into the store to buy them, as all of those items were items that they were seen purchasing in that store. But the discovery of this car actually raised more questions then it answers. The first question was about the car's location. The car was found 70 miles away from Chico and far off any direct route to Uber or Marysville. None of the men's families could figure out why they decided to drive up a very, very long and very windy road on a very cold winter's night into a high elevation forest. The men had no extra clothing to keep them warm, and they had driven up this road on the nights before that they were set to play a very important basketball game to them that they had all been very, very excited for for weeks and weeks and weeks. In fact, Jack Mandruga's parents told investigators that Jack didn't like the cold one bit. And he had never even been up in the mountains. Bill Sterling's father told investigators that he would once taken Bill up into the mountains on a fishing trip but Bill hadn't liked it one bit, and he'd actually refused to go with him again on any other occasion that his father went up to go fishing. The next question raised by the discovery of the car is why did they abandon the vehicle? The car was found at 4,400 feet above sea level, which was at the snow line for that time in the year. The car had also stopped short of where the road had been closed for the winter. The car itself had become stuck in a snowdrift, but there was evidence to show that they had tried to get out of the snowdrift because there was evidence that the wheels had spun in an attempt to get it out. Importantly, the detectives noticed that the snow wasn't so deep that the men couldn't have got out of the car. or five men, by the way, couldn't have got out of the car and tried to push the car out of the snowdrift. All five of them were young and healthy men. They were basketball players. They had the strength amongst them to push the car out of the snowdrift. It would have been quite easy, but there's no evidence at all to suggest that they even tried to do that. The keys were not found in the car or nearby the car, which suggested that the men had just taken the keys with them, which further suggested that the car maybe had some kind of issue. It could have broken down or was not functioning properly. And the men had the intention of returning later with help. However, when the police hot wired the car, it started up immediately. And the gas tank was a quarter full, which means they hadn't run out of gas. Even more questions were raised when the police towed the car back to the station for a further observation and further examination. Strangely, the car's undercarriage had no dents, scrapes, bumps, or anything like that. Not even on its very low-hanging muffler, despite having been driven up a very rocky and mountainous dirt road. Either the driver had been very, 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 very careful, or the driver was someone who was very familiar with the road, a familiarity that Jack Mandruga simply would not have had. According to Jack Mandruga's family, he would not, under any circumstances, have let somebody else drive his car. They also told investigators that it is very, very unlike Jack Mandruga to have left the car so unsecure as it was found to be unlocked when the car was discovered and with one of the front windows rolled all the way down. Unfortunately, any efforts to search the surrounding area around the car were immediately hampered by a very very intense and powerful snowstorm. Two days later, searches who were in snowcats if you don't know what those are I'll put them on screen now, nearly got lost whilst searching for the boys. And due to this, any further efforts to search for the men and was called off and postponed and this was because of the really bad weather and hazardous conditions. No further trace of the men was found during the search other than the car itself. Now, there are lots of reported sightings in this case when the media began reporting on it. The police began to receive reports that some of the men or all of the men have been sighted since leaving Chico that night. Some of the reports even claim to have seen them elsewhere in California with others elsewhere in the United States. Most of these reports In fact, almost all of these reports were easily thrown out. However, there are two very notable reports that the police received. The first report was received by Joseph Scones, I think that's how you pronounce it, from Sacramento. Joseph told police they had wound up actually staying the night between February 24th and February 25th, near the location where the car was discovered. He had driven up the mountain as he had a cabin there and he wanted to go up to check on the snowpack in advance of a weekend skiing trip that he had planned with his family. At about 5.30 p.m. on the 24th of February, about 150 meters up the road, Joseph also got stuck in the snow and he got stuck alone in the process of trying to free his vehicle he actually began to experience early symptoms of having a heart attack so he decided to get back into his car and keep the engine running to provide him with warmth Six hours later, lying in his car and experiencing a world of pain, he told the police that he saw headlights driving up behind his vehicle. Looking out of his window, he said that he saw a car with his headlights on, and this car was parked. He went on to say that he saw a group of people stood around the car talking, one of which seemed to Joseph to have been a woman holding a baby. Joseph called out to them for help, but instead of going to help Joseph, they stopped talking and turned out their lights. Later on in the night, he saw more lights coming up behind him, but this time they were flashlights. He called out to them again, but like the first time, the flashlights went out when he called out to them. After that, Joseph told investigators that he saw a pickup truck drive up behind him, park briefly before driving on, continuing on the road. Although he did say to the police that by that point, he was almost delirious from the amount of pain that he was in. In the early hours of the morning of February 25th Joseph's car ran out of fuel and because of this he decided to get out. Fortunately, most of his pain had begun to subside, so he decided to walk eight miles down the road to a lodge. When he got to the lodge, he was driven home by a manager going past the abandoned Montego car, which is where he had recalled hearing the voices coming from. Doctors later confirmed that he had actually experienced a mild panic attack. When the boy's families found out about this account, Ted Weir's mother said that Ted would have never ignored someone's plea for help. In fact, Ted Weher and Bill Sterling had actually helped someone that they knew get to the local hospital after they had overdosed on Valium. The second notable report actually comes from a woman who works in a store in the small hamlet of Brownsville, which was about 30 miles away from where the car was found abandoned. The boys would have actually ended up in Brownsville if they continued along the road that they were going in the direction that they were going. On March 3rd, a woman who had seen the missing persons bulletin in the news and in the media told investigators that four of them had actually stopped by at a store in a red pickup truck two days after the disappearance on February 26th. The owner of the store actually corroborated the woman's account. The woman said that she identified the men as all being from out of town, due to their big eyes and facial expressions. Two of the men, who the woman later identified to be Jack Hewitt and Bill Sterling, were in the phone booth while the other two of the men came into the store. Police told the media that this woman was a credible witness, and they took their account very, very seriously. Now, an additional piece of information came from the store owner himself. The store owner told investigation that's two men who we believe to be Ted Weha or Jack Hewitt came into the store and together they bought burritos, chocolate milk and soda. Ted's brother later told the media that Ted and the boys driving to Brownsville in the pickup truck, completely ignorant of the game that they had been so excited for, seemed so out of character. However, he did say that the items that they bought seemed to fit the profile. He also said that the owner's description of the behaviour seems very much like Ted. However, Jack Hewitt's brother told the media that Jack absolutely hated using the telephone. In fact, whenever one of the other boys tried to call Jack, it would be Jack Hewitt's brother that would pick up and talk to them for Jack. As you can imagine, the investigators had a very, very, very difficult and hard time trying to piece together what happened on the night of the boys' disappearance and the days following. Investigators, the media, and the boys' family and friends had so many unanswered questions. And it seems no answers for those questions would come anytime soon. In fact, What happened next would actually raise so many more questions. On June 4th, with the majority of the snow having melted at that attitude, a group of motorists went to a trailer which was maintained by the Forest Service. Now this was at a campsite off the road about 19.3 miles away from where the boy's car was found. When the motorcyclists got to the trailer, they noted that one of the front windows had been smashed in. And when they opened the door to the trailer, a horrifying, unforgettable smell hit them. And that smell, they would soon discover, would be the smell of a decomposing and rotting body. The body was on a bed inside the trailer wrapped up with eight sheets, including around the body's head. An autopsy of the body would later discover the remains to be that of Ted Weher. The autopsy revealed that Ted had died of a combination of starvation and hypothermia. He had lost almost a hundred pounds since he had gone missing, originally weighing about 200 pounds. And the growth of Ted's beard suggested to medical examiners that he hadn't shaved for 13 weeks meaning that he had likely been alive for at least 13 weeks after he went missing. Ted's feet were very, very badly frostbitten and had become almost gangrenous. On the table next to the bed where Ted's body was discovered were a selection of Ted's belongings. His wallet with some cash still inside, a nickel ring with the word Ted engraved on it, and a gold necklace that he always wore was on the table. Also on the table was a gold watch without its crystal, which Ted's family said didn't belong to him. There was also a partially melted candle. Ted had perished wearing a Valor shirt and lightweight pants, however his shoes were nowhere to be seen. Immediately after Ted's body was discovered, searchers returned to the area and began to search between where the car was discovered and the trailer. The next day, searchers would unfortunately find the remains of what would later be identified to be Jack Mandruga and Bill Sterling on opposite sides of the road. The remains were found about 11.4 miles away from where the car had been abandoned. Jack Mandruga's remains had been partially eaten by scavenging animals, and unfortunately, only bones remained of Bill Sterling and his bones were scattered over a small area. Autopsies that were conducted on Bill Sterling and Jack Mundruga had determined that both of them had died from hypothermia. Investigators speculated that one of the pair had succumbed to the desire to sleep, which is one of the final stages of hypothermia, and the other refused to leave his side, and then later succumbing to the same fate. Two days after Jack Mundruga's body and Bill Sterling's body were discovered, Jack Hewitt's father made a horrifying discovery. Jack Hewitt's father was part of one of the search parties and he discovered his son's backbone. The backbone was discovered under a manzita bush about two miles northeast of the trailer. Jack Hewitt's shoes and jeans were found near the backbone and that was used to determine the identity of the remains. The next day, a deputy sheriff discovered a skull and this skull was about 300 feet away from the location Of the backbone and using dental records they were able to identify the skull to be that of Jack Hewitt. An autopsy revealed that Jack Hewitt had also succumbed to hypothermia. In an area northwest of the trailer, about a quarter mile from it, searchers had found some strange items. They had found three Forest Service survival blankets and a rusted old torch, and all these items were found by the road. Investigators were unfortunately unable to identify or determine how long these items had been there. The only person who had not been found was Gary Mathias, and due to Gary's schizophrenia, he actually had to take medication every single day. A medication that he had not taken with him when he went missing. Pictures of Gary were handed out to all the mental institutions and hospitals across California in the hopes that Gary had and lost, picked up, and sent to one of those institutions. However, to this day, no trace of Gary Mathias has ever been found. Now, the most confusing and puzzling thing about this case to investigators was how Ted Weher actually died. In the trailer, no fire had been lit in the fireplace, despite the fact that there was an ample supply of matches and paperback books that could have been used as kindling. Heavy, forestry clothing was also in the trailer, which would have kept all the boys very warm and protected. However, this clothing had been left completely untouched and remained in the place where it was stored by the forestry service. A dozen sea ration cans had been opened and consumed, and these sea ration cans come from a storage shed outside the trailer. However, there was also a locker inside this storage shed where the sea ration uh, cans were stored, and inside that storage locker was ample supply of dehydrated foods. In fact, there was actually enough food in the trailer and the surrounding storage sheds to have kept all five of the men alive for up to a year straight. But the locker and all of that food remained unopened and untouched. In another shed near the trailer, there was a big butane gas tank. And if that shed had been opened and the gas tank's valve switched to the on position, it would have supplied the trailer's heating system, keeping them all warm. But just like the food, this was left off and untouched. Now to the investigators, it seemed that Ted her had not been alone in the trailer. It seems to investigators that Gary Mathias and possibly even Jack Hewitt had been in the trailer with Ted. Gary's tennis sneakers were found in the trailer and the sea ration cans have been opened with a P38 can opener. Now, this P38 can opener has some significance. A P38 can opener is a special kind of can opener, which is just a metal sheet that is supplied to the army. And this is something that Gary would have learned how to use during his time in the army. And it's not something that's immediately obvious of how to use, and it takes a little bit of practice to open a can quite easily, with this P-38 can opener. The sheets all over Ted Weher's body and his head suggested to investigators that someone else had done that to him. Ted's frostbitten feet would have caused so much pain to Ted that he'd, he would have been completely unable to do the sheets himself. Investigators proposed a theory that Gary had got swollen foot, perhaps from frostbite, and he decided to put on Ted Weher's shoes as they would have fit in better if he decided to venture outside. Even with the knowledge that four out of the five men had perished in the Sierra, investigators were at a complete loss as to why and how. Nobody could put together a coherent timeline of what happened to the boys. Investigators had still not found an explanation for what had led the boys to be where they were. Later in the investigation, detectives discovered that Gary Mathias actually had friends that were living in Forbes Town, which was a nearby town and they believe it possible that after the basketball game uh, they decided to go visit their friends in Forbes town. However, on the way, they took a wrong turn. There was a junction near Oroville which goes towards Forbestown, but if they took a wrong turn, it would lead them straight onto the mountainous road that the car was eventually found abandoned on. Now, for whatever reason, the men did have for leaving the car, they did leave it, and they decided to walk up the treacherous and mountainous snowy path. Which, by the way, they would have driven past the lodge where Joseph Scones, or Shcones, would later travel to to get help from the manager. And all five of them continued to go in the direction that they were originally driving in. According to investigators, purposeful motion like that demonstrated by the five men is inconsistent with the circular patterns demonstrated by people who are actually lost and believe themselves to be lost. In the days before the five men went missing, a forestry snow-capped vehicle went up the mattress path to the trailer, in the direction that the boys had gone to clear snow off the roof of the trailer so that the trailer roof wouldn't fall in. Investigators believe that the five men had decided to follow the tracks it had left, even though the snowdrifts at that point were about four to six feet high in the hopes of finding refuge, or in the belief that shelter was not too far away. Investigators believe that Jack Mundruga and Bill Sterling both perished on the walk to the trailer and it was a very very long walk. It is assumed that once the remaining boys got to the trailer they broke a window so that they could get in. Since the trailer was locked perhaps the boys believed the trailer to have been private property and they may have feared criminal charges such as theft or breaking and entering if they used any of the items or things inside the trailer or the surrounding storage sheds. After Ted Weher had died or the remaining boys believed he had died, Maybe they decided to leave in the hopes of finding civilization again. And the two remaining boys went in different directions, taking different routes, overland and on foot. Whatever really happened on that fateful night, we may never know. And that's all I have in this case. Be sure to let me know your theories in the comments section. Down below. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case True Crime series. Don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post. I'm uploading a video on Wednesday so be sure to keep an eye out for that. Like I said at the beginning of the video I am posting more on the community section so be sure to have your post notifications turned on the little bell icon so that you know when I post on that. And as per usual I'll see you in the next video.